Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. A quick spoiler, we're going to mark the coming anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on this week's episode. But we've actually been talking about doing this exact episode on this topic since about the fall of last year. Uh, We kept almost recording it in January before finally deciding to wait until now. So what was so special about the fall and January? Well, in the fall, we were anticipating a high likelihood that Republicans would capture control of the House of Representatives, maybe the Senate as well. And in looking ahead to the many ways that would change U.S. policy and political discourse, we realized that it would represent a meaningful breach in the U.S. government's otherwise unified support for Ukraine. A small one, maybe, but a real one. Uh, And I don't really think we were alone in that assessment. Uh, I think it was a big part of the reason Congress was able to pass a real appropriations bill to fund the government last year. You may have heard it called the Omnibus or the $1.7 trillion spending bill. That bill passed with a filibuster-proof bipartisan majority in the Senate in defiance of public pleading from then-House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to hold off and to let the incoming House Republican majority take a whack at the bill. Uh, But the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, is, for now at least, highly supportive of U.S. aid to Ukraine. And McConnell knew that punting the omnibus into January or February would mean giving McCarthy and the Republican Party's pro-Russia faction, which currently holds a lot of sway in the House GOP conference, an early crack at the Ukraine aid budget. So McConnell went over McCarthy's head, and instead of chipping away at U.S. support for Ukraine, Congress actually locked in tens of billions of dollars for weapons, troop supplies, and financial support for the Ukrainian government. Then in January, after putting him through a days-long humiliation ritual, Republicans elected McCarthy Speaker in a way that made it clear that the people calling shots in the House now are also the ones calling for the U.S., to, if not abandon Ukraine, at least cut aid to Ukraine drastically. And so that's why McCarthy himself keeps repeating these talking points about taking Ukraine aid dollars and spending them on, for instance, militarizing the southern border. It's also why he's threatened to default on U.S. debt unless President Biden and Democrats cough up some as yet unspecified concessions. So that's all the politics. And we realize that even if this coming year's budget fight goes much, much more smoothly than we anticipate, aid to Ukraine will be on the table. And that doesn't mean House Republicans will succeed in zeroing it out. They they could only do that over the strong opposition of, of Biden and McConnell and Chuck Schumer and all the House Democrats. Uh, but Republicans could reduce that spending by a lot. Um, or they could create a protracted crisis where aid to Ukraine remains in limbo for several weeks or longer, to to say nothing of the unpredictable consequences that would ensue if we were to default on the national debt. And so the question I've had since last fall is, what happens then? Or, Or more specifically, what might we hope to see happen between now and then on the ground in Ukraine to sort of lower the stakes of a possibly steep reduction in U.S. aid? Could Ukraine conceivably win the war before we reach the end of our budget cycle? or at least gain the upper hand securely enough to set the terms of a potential armistice. Um, So now we transition into military questions. And here I have to admit, I'm super unequipped to answer them. Uh, Before Russia invaded last year, if you'd asked, 
I probably have been able to name something like three Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv, which I probably would have pronounced Kiev. Um, I followed news out of Ukraine pretty closely over the past year and learned the geography a bit better. But these are really questions of military strategy and logistics, which A, I have no grounding in of any kind. B, are usually written and spoken about in a kind of expert vernacular that can become pretty hard to follow. And C, it's just a question not everyone agrees on. Uh, So we needed a guest who had that specific kind of expertise and a good track record of analysis throughout the war and the ability to cut through the jargon. Uh, And the person who came to mind first is Rob Lee. I happened upon Rob early in the war because the defense and foreign affairs reporters I trust seemed to trust him uh, and they valued his input. And also through a Twitter list I follow of analysts and reporters who are careful and good at seeing through the fog of war, at least as well as they can. Uh, Rob is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute with special expertise in Russian defense policy. And he'll hopefully be able to help us get a better handle, A, on the status quo, and B, on what we can reasonably expect to see happen in the coming crucial months before the U.S. posture towards Ukraine changes. So, Rob, uh, I'm really happy to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, And so apologies in advance for all the remedial questions I have. Um, But my sense is that the drop-off in knowledge uh, from true experts – down to news professionals, and then even further down to down to lay people is pretty steep on this topic. Uh, so there are probably a lot of people who can benefit from getting a sort of back to basics. Sure. Uh, I, I, will, I will emphasize one thing, though, and that I think it's mm-hmm. important to note that, um, you know, in wars, um, th- there's a lot of information that we don't know. And at least, you know, I, I, my, my, my sources are all open sources. I don't have any, you know, classified sources. So um, there's a lot we do know from this war, and there's a lot of kind of open source information. There's also a lot we still don't know, and that also kind of affects about, you know, what, what kind of conclusions you, can ju- you jump to, how strong your predictions can be. And so I, I, I still may give, you know, either low confidence predictions or kind of say I don't know as an answer just because in many cases that's, you know, the truth. And even for people that kind of focus closely, I think it's important to kind of convey the, 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 the amount of uncertainty there is, which I think is still, you know, an issue. No, that's such an important point. And like, there's a there should not be betting markets in wars if there are, and uh, if there were, I I wouldn't want to have a conversation about what the percent chances are of a certain outcome because, I mean, what does that even mean, right? Like, who could even say? But um, but you know, in following your output over the last year, I I feel like your sense of how things are going based on open sources um, has matched what has then happened sort of better than, you know, your average expert on, on Russian defense policy or Russian defense capabilities. And so, you know, we're just looking for like realistic, plausible senses of the near to medium term because of this question about the budget, which is itself, I think, a highly uncertain one. Um, So let's start with like the biggest, most speculative question, then we can dial it back to more proximate ones where you can probably weigh in with a bit more uh, confidence. So the given existing levels of support and arms that will become available in the near future, not just from the U.S., obviously, can, in theory, Ukraine win this war this year, either by driving Russia out or getting it to to agree to withdraw on some terms that we would all agree weren't the ones Russians were expecting to, to end the war on? Yeah, it's it's hard to kind of put figures on this. Um, it is certainly possible that, you, uh, that Ukraine 
can take back its territory this year. Um, I don't think that's the most likely scenario. Um, I think, you know, I looked at, a, I wrote an article in December with Michael Kaufman, and we kind of looked at Ukraine's two recent offensives, or in one in Kharkiv and in Kherson, and kind of compared and contrast the two of them. And when I think when you look in detail, um, in Kharkiv, it, it really was a case where Russia was very weak and really kind of weak, weak, um, it, 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 was, it was quite vulnerable in that area. It didn't have enough forces. The forces that were there were not, you know, very well trained or composed. Kherson had much better forces, uh, more elite units. And basically, we saw in, in Kharkiv, Ukraine achieved a lot of success, very, you know, spectacular uh, and quick advance. And then Kherson, it was uh, a much slower advance. So they did have a breakthrough after a month. And it ultimately took back the entire uh, right bank of of, of Kherson um, by 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 mid-November, but it was a much more costly fight. Um, and basically, when you look at the two and you try and compare it to what they're facing now, you know, Kherson I think is is a kind of better comparison because now the the force ratios Russia has and the defending the areas that it is defending now is much higher than it was in Kharkiv. And um, they've also I think it came to the kind of realization. They had to build defense. They started, uh, um, you know, building gr- greater defenses, um, thinking through kind of defensive plans, all these kind of things. We saw this huge amount of trenches being built, you know, all across kind of occupied Ukraine. Um, and so the, the issue is that, you know, basically what our conclusion was that if you look at Kharkiv and Kherson, um, it looks as though Kherson is is a better example of what Ukraine is going to face going forward. Um, and, you know, the prospects are, are more difficult because ultimately um, this is something, you know, a, a kind of warfare lesson we, we were re- relearning is that if you're attacking side, you attack a, um, you know, well-entrenched uh, opponent that's defending in depth and has enough artillery and other kind of advantages, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's quite difficult to overcome those things. Um, it's not impossible, right? And, and, you know, again, we have to try and forecast you know, what kind of decisions are made, other things that are a lot of variables. It's certainly possible Russia makes some, you know, significant mistakes in the, in the coming months that could set up, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian advance even more. Um, but, you know, when you, you look just kind of those factors, the things we can kind of, we can try and analyze um, of robust sources, you know, it, it will be difficult. It'll be more difficult than Kharkiv. I think Kharkiv is not that's the best example of what Ukraine's going to face. Um, and it's not clear a lot of the new equipment that's going to be arriving, um, you know, some of the tanks will be arriving, I think, next month or so, but not all of them. I'm not sure when Abrams are going to get there, even if they're going to get there, you know, the fighting season for this year. Um, the ground launch, I think, diameter, small diameter bombs, another kind of thing that would be about twice the range of, of the high Mars kind of munition. I don't know when those are arriving either. So there's a, a few of those things. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to be available kind of during the fighting season this year. And so I'm not sure we can kind of integrate that into analysis or not. So a lot of kind of um, still a lot of uncertainty. And of course, it's uncertainty on the Russian side, right? So they're tapping the foreign support, too. We know Ukraine is very dependent on foreign support at this point. But for Russia, um, you know, they're getting artillery ammunition from North Korea, apparently. Um, and right now, you know, one thing that, that I wrote with Michael Kaufman is that potentially the biggest single kind of variable that could determine how the war goes in 2023 is artillery ammunition availability. Right, which side has more? The attacking side typically needs to use more artillery ammunition than the defending side, and so we might have a situation where neither side has enough artillery ammunition to advance that much, but they can both defend. That might make it more likely we see, you know, less significant move in the front lines. Um, and of course, there, you know, Russia's receiving um, <clears throat> drones from Iran. There's, there's talk they might receive missiles too. That could change the complexion of the war as well. 
So a variety of things that kind of, you know, basically the answer comes down to it, it depends. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it, it's, you know, it, it's not possible. Um, and of course, Russia's force now is, is, you know, largely composed of, you know, involuntary soldiers, right. Mobilized guys or, you know, volunteers who, who signed up in the, in the or summer on a three month contract who then got told, well, your contract's not ending until the war ends. Um, so that affects things as well. But, you know, again, if I don't think a collapse of Russian lines is the most likely event right now, uh, even though we've heard tons of anecdotes of, of problems with mobilization and, and all these other kind of things. So, again, anyway, we're, we're you try and throw all these things together, these always variables together, hard to kind of come to an ultimate conclusion. Um, but again, I, you know, I would not dismiss the chance that Ukraine makes you know, significant uh, advances this year. It's certainly possible they find a weak point in, in Russia's lines. Uh, and they can, you know, they've shown they can exploit that. They've shown they can do combined arms warfare. And, you know, I, I don't at this point, I, I, I wouldn't ever, you know, dismiss the chance that Russia will make a terrible, you know, strategic decision, more terrible strategic decisions that set up, you know, themselves for, for more failure. Putin has done that repeatedly in this war. But, you know, I, I don't think that's the most likely scenario. I gather what you're saying is that it's a hard call to make. <laughs> um, yeah. no, but to but to but to uh, actually, you know, sort of put it in, in rudimentary terms. So, so, uh, Kharkiv and Kherson are, are strategically significant cities on the long front line that stretches down Eastern Ukraine to sort of Southeastern Ukraine. And your assessment of how fighting in those places went informs your view that while, uh, you know, it's possible we'll reach the later months of 2023 and Ukraine will be at or near the point of victory. You don't think it's the likeliest scenario. And that's con- complicated by lots of uncertainty around when, for instance, M1 Ab- uh, the Abrams tanks will be available and, and various other ar- artillery, how much artillery they're going to have. Is that a good way to sort of condense it? Yeah. And Kharkiv and Kherson, they're both cities and regions. And so I was talking more about the regions. In Kherson, they put, took back the city and the region. And Kharkiv, the, the city was always in Ukrainian hands, but they took back almost you know, the entire region during that kind of that, that, that first week in September. One of the you know, potentially most important moments of the war um, was the Russian withdrawal from the right bank of, of Kherson. So they, they crossed the Dnieper River. Um, and before that, um, you know, it, this happened in November and, and, and Russia kind of declared this publicly. And, and, and the offensive there began at the end of August by Ukraine. The first month didn't really achieve much. In October, they had a breakthrough, and then it, it kind of steadily kept pushing. Um, so it's a big question because the Dnieper is a big river. And once they made some advances, once HIMARS arrived, um, the, the, the few bridges across the river were within range of HIMARS. So the, the munitions that HIMARS have, the ones we provided, um, are, are not mass munitions. So, they, you know, they can't. They can punch holes in bridges, but they couldn't, you know, destroy the bridge itself um, unless, you know, you fired a lot of rounds and Russia tried to kind of repair it. And it is oh, this, you know, long story of repeated kind of strikes. Um, so Russia started using kind of pontoon bridges and other things to, to move things across. And one of the kind of views, you know, going up to it was basically um, if you've interdicted, if Ukraine's interdicted the supply line, then maybe Russia will not be able to supply its forces. Um, or it'll be very difficult to withdraw to, to you know, get guys across the river without kind of collapsing. And ultimately, what we found somewhat counterintuitive is that Russia was still, you know, firing a lot of artillery ammunition in, in Kherson up until basically the end. So HIMARS were, were, had been very important, but 
Um, I think we we might have exaggerated the effect a little bit because Russian logistics, you know, proved to be you know pretty pretty uh, satisfactory in that case. And then the withdrawal itself, um, you know, I thought it was it was potential that could be a very costly moment for Russia. And Russia had a lot of its most elite units, so the, the, the airborne forces units were were on the side of the river. And of course, while they're there, Russia couldn't kind of move them back and forth. Um, and, and so it was a big, you know, I think question of whether or not Russia could do that. And ultimately, you know, their, their withdrawal was very successful. It appears they they managed to get their units back. Most of the equipment was, um, they managed to, to pull back as well. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 I think this is probably a big significant um, moment that Ukraine you know, didn't capitalize on that. And I think there's still, you know, some questions why there's some sources saying that Russia used a lot of mines to Ukraine, couldn't pursue effectively. Um, but, you know, all those elite units that were, um, you know, stuck on the right side of the river when, when Ukraine was kind of still advancing elsewhere. Well, these units are now spread across the front lines now, and they're elite units. And so now, you know, those elements of the front line that were vulnerable back in, in November or October, where Ukraine was still pushing in, in, in Luhansk, Obus, and elsewhere, um, now those areas of the front are much more stabilized. They stabilized basically, you know, pretty quickly, I think, after that happened by December. Um, and it really changed the complexion of the war. And so I think that's one thing we look forward. You know, first off, Russia's front lines have gotten smaller because now the Dnipro is, is a, a large barrier for much of it. And then they were able to kind of rebalance forces elsewhere. And then you had mobilization. And mobilization is the other kind of big significant event where now Russia's manpower, you know, is, is probably greater than Ukraine's. Yes, there are issues with, you know, how well trained these soldiers are, how good are these units, you know, do they make huge mistakes? They do. But ultimately, it allows Russia to have some kind of rotation now. And so, I mean, some units, you know, some of these elite units in the airborne forces were basically perpetuating combat since February 24th, right, up until, you know, September, October, November, basically. Now you can rotate those units. You can you can mobile. You can send combat replacements to those units, and so it, it's it's uh, it's given Russia a, a, a greater ability to stay in the war, and that's why that's one of the reasons why it'll be more difficult for Ukraine to keep advancing. Got it. Got it. So I mean, in in a war, you don't generally I don't think want to be withdrawing from anywhere. It, it's it's a bad sign. But what you're saying by successful withdrawal is it wasn't a, a sort of catastrophic collapse in fighting that allowed Ukraine to kill a lot of people, capture a lot of weaponry, and it, they, they were able to disperse the surviving forces elsewhere in the country. And so this is sort of, I think it sounds like it's part and parcel of my general sense, and and maybe this is related to why you think less likely than than more likely that the war is winnable within uh, the, the time span of, of a few months, my sense is that the, the war has settled generally and maybe not just there into this kind of grinding game of inches um, o- across a huge front line. Um, and that, um, and that even when Russia is being set back, um, it's in a way that, that, you know, you're, you're not talking about them giving up tons of ground really, um, at any given point. Well, I mean, so in Kharkiv, they did, right? So it was a, it was a very dramatic, I think Ukraine was surprised how fast they advanced because they, they, I think they, they had a city that was kind of their target and they, they reached it within, I think, four or five days. So, so it was a very dramatic advance. Um, and Kherson, of course, when Russia pulled back, right, you know, they immediately gained a lot of ground. Now it's quite significant for a variety of reasons. It was, it was a, a mass amount of land they took back. And of course, you know, for Ukraine, you know, they, they, we, we've seen what happened in all the areas that have been occupied by Russian forces. You know, there's a strong kind of moral or kind of, you know, um, um, motivation for Ukrainians to retake these areas because they want to they want to liberate these areas. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's something that we probably can't kind of comprehend because we're not Ukrainian. 
Um, and so it, it is a tremendous victory for them to do that in both cases. Um, but yeah, when you when you when you try and you know apply what happened in those places going forward, um, you know the force ratios Russia had in Kharkiv, uh, you know forced in the front line was was very kind of limited, <clears throat> and the unit the district that was there was kind of a, it was a, a basically Russia's worst kind of multi district charge of that. And now it's it's been <clears throat> somewhat fixed. But I wouldn't make one point in that, um, you know, the people, <clears throat> so so Russia put in the beginning of October, uh, General Sorovikin in charge and um, it made, it made a change command uh, change. I think he was the first true kind of o- overall commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, where basically Putin was was asking reports from him and he would provide them. And I, I don't think Putin was, you know, talking to support at this point. It was, he, he was the point of contact. Um, <clears throat> and during the withdrawal, it was Sorovikin who I think was the one who wanted to do that. Who saw that basically the, the way to, to stabilize the front lines was to pull back from that side of, of Kherson. And then it appears the VDB with their new commander, Mikhail Tiplinsky, was the one in charge of kind of the withdrawal. Again, you know, by all counts, quite successful um, operation. And of course, you know, Sorovikin, when he came in charge, you know, the things they, they stabilized, right? So, so yes, they gave up territory. And of course, you know, Russia calls all of this part of Russia now, which is, you know, there's an added kind of element of embarrassment of, of you know, justifying why you were drawing from those areas um, because part of those, you know, the sham referendums they ran. Um, but that part was successful. However, w- w- you know, even though um, those, you know, cold months, it seems those sort of Eakin was well, relatively successful in stabilizing the lines, um, stabilizing it while mobilization kind of come into effect. And have have uh, have you know to be useful. Um, he was later demoted, and Gorasimov took over. Is, is now the, the, the commander of of, of, the, of the war, and then the commander of the VDB. He appears he resigned as well. It's not very completely clear. Um, even though they both kind of oversaw this, you know, successful withdrawal, maybe the most successful operation Russia did since the beginning of the war. Um, they were you know rewarded with basically either getting demoted or basically being kind of pushed out. Um, and then other people put in charge who are you know, less capable, who have less experience in the war. And so it always comes back to, um, you know, Putin has had this terrible kind of effect on, I think, the Russian military's decision making and, and how it rewards, uh, you know, and what kind of incentives it has. And he consistently has pushing for more ambitious objectives than they can achieve. And so either generals can kind of say, you know, we can achieve this, in which case they might get demoted or replaced, or they'll try to achieve it. And you see these kind of, um, you know, costly and really unsuccessful events like you see in, in Vodar, which in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, where it's just been, you know, basically Russian forces trying to advance through minefields, really limited prospects of success and taking very heavy losses. Uh, and basically, you know, the videos just just kind of come back and say, you know, what's going on here? Have they learned any lessons? Like, well, I think the the problem is that when the, when the person in charge of this keeps having these demands that are unrealistic, um, and you keep having officers who are willing to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try something. Um, it leads to these kind of results where people get killed for you know, no good reason. Um, right. and, and of course, you know, when you try to extrapolate, what does that mean for the future? It means if, if Russia is smart, right? So if, if Russia just tried to fight a defensive war, they just tried to hold the current front lines, they have a lot of manpower. They probably have enough artillery ammunition. They probably have enough things to make it very difficult for Ukraine to retake all the territory. But they keep trying to advance. And we keep seeing these costly advances. And basically, Ukraine's big successes in Kharkiv and Kherson in the fall, the, the reason for those successes was Russia was doing a lot of costly advances at Donbass in the spring and summer. They took heavy losses. They weren't able to um, sustain those losses. They weren't able to 
to uh, make up for them, and it left them vulnerable, and it, and it set the stage for Ukraine's successes. It's you know possible that the same thing could happen this year if Russia throws in forces that aren't ready and you know creates problems that it doesn't need, and they keep having these unreal expectations of what they can achieve. It sounds like Putin has very unrealistic expectations of and demands of his forces, which are themselves sort of, if not depleted in number, then depleted in, in capability. Um, and that's created chaos and disruption of the of the uh, chain of command. Um, nevertheless, the line hasn't changed very much through all that chaos. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, if you if you think it's sort of less likely that this is all over or coming to an end six months from now is how likely is it that this can sustain itself? This sort of punch and retreat, high casualty fighting that leaves the front line almost unchanged over the course of months. Yeah. So, so one of the big questions, and we look at the last maybe two months of this war, right? So since mobilization took, you know, kicked in and Russia pulled back from the right bank garrison. Um, so basically, we've seen Russia advance or try to advance. We haven't really seen Ukraine do, do that much. I, th- I think probably Ukraine was hoping they could advance more to the winter, but ba- I think mobilization kind of just made it, made it much more difficult. And it made it, um, you know, I, I tweeted about this the other day. Basically, U- Ukraine could be trying to advance right now, right? I think, I think we get a perception sometimes based on who's trying to advance. We say, oh, this side is winning. And, and it's not necessarily the best indicator because oftentimes you hold back reserves um, to wait for an offensive and you want to hold back enough reserves to give yourself a chance to actually, you know, uh, achieve significant success. So not just a grinding, you know, we, we took back these, you know, this like this one town, but looking more like a Kharkiv type thing where not only did you penetrate where this town is, we drove past it and we're continuing to push to try and take back an entire, you know, region. Um, and so I think what Ukraine's doing right now is they, I think they're still trying to take territory this, this winter. Once Russia kind of mobilized, once they solidified their front lines, it became pretty clear they, they couldn't do that with kind of small offensives. And so I think they're kind of waiting for a bigger offensive when they have you know better conditions in place. And so part of that means you know training units that, that can be ready for this. Obviously, Ukrainians will rely on mobilized soldiers too. So they have to constantly be training new units, get constantly working on, on uh, unit cohesion, um, training on new equipment, replacing equipment, all those kind of things. So I think there's a, a lot of those things going into it. And any kind of offensive, you know, if Ukraine is going to have success with a, with a, a offensive going forward, they're going to have to have a very well planned and kind of prepared uh, plan that you know they, they they attack the right area, they find where Russian forces are low, they they husband kind of their you know precision guided munitions to use them for that specific kind of operation, um, and they they do everything they can to give themselves a chance to um, not just you know penetrate, not just to you know take one town. But to do a substantial breakthrough to try and push to the Sea of Azov, some of those lines, which I think is what they want to do. Um, and so that's why they're, you know, they're kind of holding back some of those things. What, you know, one of the big questions in terms of sustainability, you know, it, it, in general, if we look at it, Russia should have the advantage in sustaining this war because, you know, I, I, I different times thought, you know, maybe there'll be some kind of domestic, you know, events that will be pushed back and it'll, it'll put Putin in a tough position. And ultimately, you know, we've seen the economy has gotten hit again. Uh, mobilizations occurring right there. You know, I mean, we heard the anecdotes of mobilization where, you know, they're pulling men in their 50s out of bed in the middle of the night, you know, sending them into, um, you know, uh, living tents in Siberia in the middle of winter with no heating 
and then deploying them. And some of these guys are getting, you know, killed right away. And, and, and yet, you know, we saw protests at the beginning of mobilization, not, nothing really since then, <clears throat> right? We, we see these videos, sometimes mobile soldiers say, oh, we're angry with our commanders, et cetera. But what are those anecdotes, you know, build up to? And thus far, you know, nothing in terms of any kind of real domestic threat to Putin. I don't, you know, maybe something could happen, right? I, I, don't, I don't, I wouldn't dismiss the possibility. It just doesn't seem as it was the most likely events. Um, and so I think, you know, Russia will be able to continue and endure this. They'll, you know, they, they, they have a lot of people who are mobilized now. Um, and when you look at kind of what happened in December, Bakhmut kind of became the focus, right? Where Wagner um, became kind of more important. It kind of elevated their role in the war. Uh, and Bakhmut was kind of the main place where Russia was kind of advancing during most December and January. And they had had some success in, in Solodar and in Bakhmut in general. So, um, you know, the fight's still going on. Still possible Russia will, will, will take the, the, the town based on uh, um, you know things they've taken around there uh, more recently. The big question with Bakhmut was you know Wagner is a bit of a unique case because they recruit a lot of prisoners. Um, their tactics involved using prisoners in a very kind of you know I mean the, the term they keep using is you know meat grinder or similar lines um, taking very very heavy casualties. Um, that would not be sustainable in normal cases, but it's prisoners, and so it's a question of you know. How, how much do prisoners hate being in Russian prisons? How much do you want to get out of a 20-year prison sentence, right? Um, and so, the, you know, there was having some success there. And it was a combination. It was prisoners, but Wagner also has elite units that are comparable to some of the best Russian military units. And it was, it was using them uh, together that basically led them to having some success. And so there was a question, though. Russia was clearly taking heavy casualties while doing so. Um, Ukraine was as well, which is also a problem because Ukraine can't kind of sustain that level of attrition. Because that level of attrition now makes it more difficult for Ukraine to have success on offensives later this spring. So they need to have, you know, sort of trained and so on. And so it's a bit of a question is, you know, how much of this is a representation of something that Russia can sustain? Or is this something they can do for a month or two and can't, you know, for the foreseeable future? That part, I think, probably is something that they couldn't sustain. Um, more recently, it appears the MOD, um, which is, I think, reasserting itself in the war now with, with Gerasimov taking over, it appears Wagner is no longer recruiting prisoners. Maybe that's partially because prisoners found out that they were, you know, probably going to die if they, they they joined the fight. Um, it might also be a case that the um, allegedly the MOD took over that kind of pipeline of manpower. If they have that manpower pipeline, Wagner doesn't. It means Wagner's role will be reduced in the war. Um, so that that potentially changes it. But the other issue is that with mobilized soldiers, you know, there the plenty of mobile soldiers have been killed often in in you know instances where you know terrible leadership. Right? There's, there's, there's one strike in. Uh, I think it was Bukivka where um, like a battalion was kept in one building next to ammunition and they're all a large number were killed in a high mark strike. Just, you know, but again, one of those, one of those mistakes that Russian forces learned back in July, if you do this, right, if you all bunch together within high Mars range, um, you know, there's a good chance you'll get killed. Well, that mistake happened. A lot of guys get killed unnecessarily because of you know leadership mistakes, but right with mobile soldiers, you can't use them the same way Wagner is using prisoners. Um, and in, in Volodar, we're seeing, um, you know, it, trying to, Russia's trying to advance. Clearly, there's some mobilized soldiers being involved there, trying to, as common place with these units. But Russian military units, can they use that kind of template elsewhere? And I, I don't think really they can. So they can try and advance. If they, if they, you know, don't have success after a couple of days or a week, they can't keep doing the grinding stuff that Wagner can do. And a lot of the success Russia had in the, the late spring and summer in the Battle of Donbass, like June, you're hearing a lot of kind of really concerning stories. It was because Russia was they had, they had an enormous artillery advantage, right? They're firing like 
they're, they're range estimates, probably like 10 to 1, 15 to 1 artillery rounds a day than what um, Ukraine was firing, right? Like, like you know, 20, 25,000, I think people were, were saying about Russia. Um, they can't fire that much anymore. They can still fire plenty of artillery, but not like an overwhelming amount that Ukraine just can't compensate for at all. And so a lot of their success in June and July was due to this massive quantitative advantage, but they, they, they chewed through that. They don't have that massive advantage anymore. And so we talk about, okay, if you're going to advance, you want to have different kind of advantages, right? Maybe it could be manpower. It could be air superiority, which neither side really has. could be artillery ammunition, all these kind of different things. And the, 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 the kind of tools of success that Russia had before, they don't really have at this point. They have a manpower advantage, but, you know, can you use mobilized soldiers the same way you can use, you know, Wagner conscripts? The answer is no. Um, and there are some more political issues there. And so, you know, I, again, I, I'm skeptical that Russia will advance that far. But the bigger issue is that, you know, with a, with a large manpower uh, of mobile soldiers, you know, they can still help defend. And it still makes it more difficult that Ukraine can advance. And that's, you know, the question is, does either side have enough offensive capability to kind of break the deadlock? And that, that that's an open question. So quick terminology interlude for, for the benefit of listeners. MOD, Ministry of Defense, um, to, uh, give them a, a quick overview of what the Wagner Group is. Um, and then I'll, on the other side of that, I have a, a question of my own about uh, about how it is that Putin has managed to avoid internal blowback uh, from, like you said, pulling 50-year-old men out of bed and throwing them uh, under the front line. Sure. So Wagner, um, the sort of Russian PMCs, the recent one goes back to like 2013 or so, 2012. Um, they're, they're a group that recruited to fight in Syria in 2013. They, I don't think they had a, approval by the Russian government. So when they came back um, from Syria, they got rolled up by the FSB, the, uh, the Russian um, security service. And, you know, basically that got stopped. When when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, um, Wagner kind of came about when the fight at Donbass occurred, where basically Russia was, you know, putting up with this, um, you know, attempt at impl- implausible deniability that they were involved in the fighting in 2014 at Donbass, where they said the Russian military is not there. And, and one thing that we've learned from this war is, that, you know, they basically stopped pretending. So, you know, these there's, there's a Russian regimental commander who was killed a couple months ago. You know, one of the one of the Wagner channels on Telegram, you know, was posting photos of him fighting in Donbass in 2014, right? When he was in charge of one of these DNR units that was a separatist unit, they claim, but it was clearly just, you know, Russian military officers leading it. Um, so <clears throat> there was a demand for uh, volunteers, there's demand for kind of manpower that could fight. That wasn't necessarily, you know, part of the Russian MOD structure. Um, <clears throat> so Wagner came out in 2014, uh, or tw- yeah, 2014. Um, so they, they put a role there, and then Syria is really where it kind of became they became big. But basically, Syria it was obviously a, a invasion a intervention that Russia you know, said publicly they're doing, but there was still a concern that um, Syria was not that popular war with Russians. It was not unpopular, but not that popular, and so. Um, uh, the Kremlin, I think, was concerned about if they started taking heavy casualties, you know, there might be political blowback. And so they, they looked at Wagner as a kind of alternative option where whenever the Syrian military, Syrian army couldn't maybe achieve something itself, Wagner is another option they could do where these would be guys that actually assault kind of positions with Russian military tourist support, other kind of military support. Um, but the Russian military itself would be kind of farther back, less likely to take casualties, and Wagner would kind of do the heavy lifting. And one side effect is that um, the Russian military, when invaded Ukraine in 2022, 
was that a lot of units were not as capable at doing some of these operations, like assaulting a lot of these infantry type of operations because the Russian military wasn't doing that seriously. It was Wagner doing that. And so Wagner had uh, more experience, it's more expertise, and also kind of affected kind of cultural aspects of the Russian military because when, when Russian soldiers kind of said, okay, who are, who are the elite guys of the Russian military that kind of set cultural kind of uh, mores, like in the, in, the, in the U.S., it's special operations forces, really. But in, in Russia, it's maybe partially special operations units, but also Wagner, because Wagner are the guys, you know, fighting and the Wagner are the guys that kind of achieve some of the successes. Um, the Wagner, uh, the, the leader of it was a former GRU officer who has um, a penchant for uh, Nazi kind of ideology and things. Um, he's he's uh, uh, like SS tattoos. Um he was a word, uh, and and um, anyway, he so Wagner came from the the German composer, and then um, the person overseeing the the organization itself, Evgeny Prigozhin, is a <clears throat> businessman who who got started in Saint Petersburg. He spent time in, in prison. Um, he has a catering business. He also um, uh, set up at, at some point was was catering all the Russian military type things. Got a lot of kind of state contracts, as many things in, in Russia. That's how you kind of become rich is you, you have right connections and you get state contracts. Um, his connection to Putin. And that's also, you know, a big point of how power works in, in Russia, where regardless of what, you know, the flow chart says of who is the most you know important person, it's really who is the, uh, who can talk to Putin, who is the closer relationship to Putin, um, which is really kind of better indication of power. And in this case- And, and so th- their supplies and their food and their money, that all comes from Kremlin so, or that- so, it, it, so the equipment comes from the Russian military. So they get stockpile weapons from the Russian military. Um, at times, they've gotten you know bad stockpile weapons. So they get they, they complain a lot about what they're getting in Syria. But during this war, <clears throat> has been a combination. So Wagner guys have been seen with the you know BMP3s with uh, T90M tanks, the newest tanks. They they had their own air force now. So they're operating Su-24 bombers. Um, one of which got uh, shot down or, or, or damaged the other day. Um, so. You know, we talk about kind of private military companies. We often talk about it in the U.S. context, but a lot of those companies are—they're not really. I mean, they're not really—they're not capable of doing independent military operations because they—they kind of fill in where the U.S. military doesn't do things, right? Wagner is a case where, in, in a lot of ways, it is a more of a real private military company in that it can do military operations independently in many cases, as long as it gets kind of logistic support from the Russian military. And so in Libya. It was um, fighting alongside LNA forces, the Libyan forces there, the Battle of Tripoli. Um, they, they are operating in Central African Republic. They make, they're making a lot of money in Africa because a lot of the, the deals they set, while they provide some security or personal security for leaders in Africa, they also get the contracts for a lot of the mining deals. And so they kind of spread out. And you know, Piers Wagner is making quite a bit of money in Africa uh, on their own, by their own operations. Um, but it's also kind of a low-cost kind of foreign policy um, option for Putin, where Prigozhin can go to Putin and say, you don't have to deploy any soldiers, right? So there's no risk that we pull the ball back to you, but we can go to a country and we can kind of develop a relationship. Um, and we, you know, we, we make money because we'll run their minds or other things. Um, at the same time, you know, basically because we're providing security for this leader, we have an ability to kind of, you know, uh, 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 to, to uh, influence or coerce kind of thing going, going our way. And kind of can you know can can support kind of Russian foreign policy in regard. And so anyway, um, at the beginning of war, Wagner did not play a significant role. But once uh, Russian military losses became you know significant, Wagner had a um, 
and infrastructure for recruiting new people that the Russian military didn't. So the Russian military gets its people from con- from conscription, some of whom they sign contracts, but doesn't really kind of go out and recruit like the U.S. military does. Well, Wagner did. And so when the war began, Wagner had that infrastructure to, to immediately tap into guys who fought for them before to offer other kind of deals. They had their own training center, which is co-located with a GRU Spetsnaz Brigade um, uh, you know, training center down in the south. Um, so they had their ability to train people and they had their ability to equip people and so on. And so that kind of gave them a, a kind of leg up to immediately play a role in this war. And then by the time of December, right, when, when Russian military kind of pulled back elsewhere, was trying to defend elsewhere, Wagner kind of, you know, raises kind of um, <clears throat> um, its role. And that it was the one kind of Russian force that was trying to advance. And Prigozhin, you know, was, was very much putting himself front and forward as, as kind of the head of the war. And he was, you know, he'd post video of himself, you know, allegedly going to the front lines. Um, you know, when, when, when guys would get killed, he'd go and he'd be there to, to, to go to the funerals, to see guys who'd been wounded. He's doing all these kind of traditional leadership steps. And the issue, I think, for the Russian military, he also was criticizing many Russian military leaders, including the kind of, you know, the Grasmov Shoigu, the, the head of it. Um, and part of the issue was that he was kind of asserting himself as the leader of the war. And I think one of the reasons why Gerasimov took over more recently is he wanted to reassert the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, saying, you know, we are the ones leading the war. We are the face of the war. Wagner might be playing a role, but we are the ones, you know, overall, we, should, we also we should be getting the credit to successes, although they might, you know, try and push away the, the failures on someone else. So we'll see how that goes. Right. Okay. So it's, you know, semi-independent, semi-rogue, fighting force that um, has been helpful to the to Russian fighting position and also seemingly sort of helpful to the political leadership insofar as it takes pressure off of them to go out and conscript um, from, you know, pull, you know, pulling 50-year-old men out of bed, like to, to use the example you used. Is that like a yeah. And dry. So, so, so I, I think there's a question now that Russia's mobilized, it's a question of how how important is Wagner as a large organization? So one problem is that Wagner, I think, is more uh arguably effective than the Russian military is. The Russian military is bigger, and so and, and it's also harder to reform. And there are some systemic problems and, and and issues in the Russian military. Um, you know, Wagner had some success in this war, right? And, and, and a couple of cities, again, it's it's not massive successes, but it is. So, you know, at least recently, right? The the most recent kind of success the Russians had, it's been a result of Wagner forces, and so they've gotten kind of credit for that. Um, which is obviously, and everyone in kind of Russia wants to take credit for the successes there and, and not for the failures. Um, so they are playing an important role in that regard. But right, the prisoner aspect that was something Wagner tapped into early. They, I think they were they were smart to kind of do that. They saw this untapped potential there. Not clear that that was going to be a sustainable thing, you know, forever. Um, not clear that, you know, Wagner kind of exists and operate the same kind of scale once mobilization began. Um, and also, you know, the other aspect is, is Wagner kind of plays by its own rules. And so there are two guys who were uh, former prisoners who joined Wagner, who surrendered to Ukraine, um, who apparently were, you know, passed back to Russia in a prisoner swap. And Wagner's posted videos of them executing both these guys as sledgehammers. And so there is another aspect where basically say, you know, we we will execute people who are not, you know, we're not loyal to our forces. We will operate a different way. And, and they kind of present themselves as this brutal kind of unit that that's more effective and more results oriented than maybe the Russian military. 
And Prigozhin kind of, you know, you know, says this kind of in publicly where he says, you know what, we're, we're going to take casualties, right? We, we're going to do it, but we're going to achieve things and kind of, you know, explicitly says that. So, of course, you know, the guys that join Wagner, you know, there's acceptance that you're more likely to die. Um, and, and it might be acceptance that mobilized soldiers do not have. And also there might be a still political dimension saying, OK, you know, clearly in, in Syria elsewhere, I don't, I don't think Russians care too much when Wagner members got killed because they they signed up for this. They knew what they were kind of, you know, signing up for. Mobilized soldiers are involuntary soldiers. Um, they're not necessarily that well trained. And so I think there is a di- the distinction, I think, among Russians about what are the political kind of costs associated with Wagner guys getting killed or you use immobilized soldiers in these kind of, you know, uh, very unsuccessful frontal assaults that are likely to lead to heavy casualties and that are, that are you know, conducted in a very kind of poor manner. Right. Like, like send the cowboys in instead of the, uh, you know, the people who work in laboratories and wherever else. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you say Putin managed to avoid the kind of political unrest, political blowback um, that you might have expected, given that they had to um, mobilize the population. Is that just information control? Is that just that that he can kind of keep the masses, if not literally everybody, from becoming aware that that? A, that he did that, the kind of people that were mobilized and then what happened to them? Or is there more that has sort of insulated him from the kind of catastrophic blowback that I think a lot of people were, if not hoping for, like maybe thinking was kind of likely earlier in the war? So I think um, one of the prerequisites for this war to happen and, and be, happen the way it did <clears throat> was basically all the steps that Putin has taken in the last 20 years to control the system in Russia, um, to make dissents, you know, costly um, to push back any kind of, you know, independent um, opposition to them. You know, before the war began, most of the opposition was was in exile or in jail, right? And we know that Navalny, um, and of course, Navalny is a good case, right? He, he was, he's poisoned, he's put in jail on, on Trump charges. He's, you know, he sees videos of him who, you know, he looks, he's in terrible condition. And, you know, it didn't lead to any kind of uh, you know, uh, uh, unrest in Russia, you know, it led, to, I think, protests in the beginning. But, you know, again, it's, it's just the extent of it. You know, Putin has kind of shaped a system internally that makes uh, dissent costly and has basically incentivized, you know, indifference. I think the issue is that a lot of Russians say we have no ability to affect what the Russian government does. So I'm just not going to think about it. Right? We're going to try and pretend it's not going on. And, you know, life goes on because I can't control it myself. And I think that's kind of a attitude that Putin has managed to kind of um, maybe force in Russia the last 20 years. And yeah, obviously, there are you know, the big protests in 2011. They, they had protests since then as well. But, you know, they, they, the Russian security services, you know, managed to make it difficult to do that, made, made it difficult to kind of protest, to organize protests. Um, and so, when, you know, the war began. Of course, you know, they, they made it very clear when the war began that, you know, any kind of dissent was not going to be really... Um, was not going to be, uh, um, ex- you know, accepted and per- uh, permitted. So I think all those kind of things just at the stage were basically, you know, R- Russians, I-, I-, I think a lot of Russians are against the war, but, you know, I think a lot of them feel basically, well, I can't do anything personally. So either, you know, many obviously Russians left, right? Uh, of course, military age males left, um, you know, but other ones who don't, they kind of say, well, my entire kind of prospects for a career-wise or other things you know, is tied to not saying anything. And, and they put they put people in charge for, you know, criticizing the war for, you know, posting information about 
you know, actual things that have happened. And so again, it's a strong incentive to, to not kind of speak out. Got it. Um, it's, you know, I, it's just, it's been 20 years of, of Putin kind of putting the system in place to make it difficult to, to have any kind of active resistance. And so Got that it. was really critical. Um, and then, yeah, on the propaganda side, right. We know for a long time, TV, Russian TV is going to, you know, kind of provide a, a, a kind of singular angle on that kind of stuff. Um, and Telegram is a bit of an outlet where, where you get more unfettered view from kind of war correspondents or the groups who are following the war. But those are mostly pro-war people, right? So, you know, they, they'll complain about officers making bad decisions. They won't complain about the war itself or, you know, for the most part, or kind of the goals, things of that nature. You don't really hear as much about that. Um, and yeah, and I think even just, you know, personally, I think people are just, they're reticent to tell other people they're again, you know, might be against something else because they, they, they know there might be professional consequences for them. And, you know, little, little prospect, I think, of, of Putin being replaced from their view, because they've probably seen all these kind of different, you know, times before when process occurred and, and ultimately didn't lead to any kind of, you know, significant change. So, um, yeah, you know, again, I thought there'd be more. I thought there, there'd be more risk for Putin. And of course, you know, he was he was delaying the decision to a mobilization until September, until after the kind of really significant setback in Kharkiv. Um, but ultimately, you know, since he's been doing that, we haven't seen, you know, that much kind of pushback domestically. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, despite some really, you know, horrific anecdotes of, you know, there's a shooting at one of the, the ranges where mobile soldiers were, there's, you know, all these kind of different anecdotes of terrible things occurring and, and, you know, guys, guys were deployed immediately. You know, they said that you'd get like, oh, multiple weeks of training, et cetera. And of course, you know, in many cases that was not true. And, and, um, but anyway, despite all that, right. Anecdotes are not building up to any kind of significant, um, I think domestic opposition that we can tell. And, you know, we try and predict things in the future. You know, I, I don't think I'd predict that, you know, we'll see a breaking point in times in the future. Could happen, but probably not the most likely uh, um, you know, possibility. So on the, on, the, on the power of information, on hiding off the information half of information control, right? The, um, the analyst, Phillips O'Brien, you know, there's been news media reports and rumors and other things about you know, uh, a looming Russian turnaround. They're m- going to mobilize. They're going to actually finally break through this sort of stalemate that we've been in for at least a couple of months. Um, he reasoned that this meme, I don't even know what you want to call it, this, this sense of of uh, a coming turnaround for Russia was something that Ukrainians may have been feeding to the press um, as part of like a, a, a bank shot, bank shot, uh, diplomatic feint essentially to secure more aid. But maybe it got like a little bit out of hand, or they did too good a job um, because they, um, you know, by by sort of tipping global conventional wisdom about the war into an unhelpful place. You know, it, it wasn't just that they were able to persuade foreign governments that they needed more aid. They might have been persuading foreign governments or foreign elites um, that maybe the this is a lost cause or it's, it, the cause is a long shot. And um, they might start getting comfortable with the idea of he called it a, a bad piece, quote unquote, bad piece. Do you buy that reasoning um, just about the importance of public information over facts on the ground? Yeah. Um, 
so Ukraine certainly manages the information environment, and they do a very good job of that typically. Um, so you know that the, uh, statements from Ukraine officials are more accurate than what you get from Russian officials. There's no doubt about that. But there's certainly cases where some of the you know figures they give, you know, I I, I think it's, it's reasonably skeptical about that. Um, there were some interviews that were given in December where they're talking about there might be a, a huge new offensive in early in January that, you know, certainly did not seem to be <clears throat> um, corroborated by the facts that we knew. Um, and we, you know, we haven't, we, we've seen kind of offensive going on in January, this kind of big push that they've been talking about. The, the initial part has not been that, you know, substantial, that significant. We'll see about the kind of the area of Luhansk, what we're kind of waiting for. It probably has already began, but we haven't, you know, seen a huge kind of change yet. Um, so I, I do think Ukraine, you know, I think Ukraine officials deliberately try and shape the information environment. Um, I think there is, you know, w- when they were hyping some of the things of Russian invasion, you know, we might see some Belarus or some of the, some of the, the forces involved. Um, I thought some of that was probably um, maybe kind of taking the more, um, you know, the worst case scenario as opposed to kind of the baseline was most most likely. Uh, and of course, you know, if if you need more weapons to stop a bigger invasion, um, you know, those weapons would be useful for taking back all the terrain, right? And ultimately, you know, the, the, the question, of course, is always with the U.S. and Ukraine. There is a a um, <clears throat> overlap in, in in kind of war aims, but in terms of what is the you know what piece of terrain is of <clears throat> um, in terms of will Ukraine take back all all of its occupied terrain? That's where I think it becomes somewhat of a divergence, where um, it's more important for Ukraine to take back every piece of territory that's occupied right now. I think from a lot of U.S. officials or, or, or kind of U.S. politicians, there might not be the same, um, you know, I guess, I guess uh, um, significance there. It's more important that Ukraine isn't defeated. It's more important that kind of Ukraine remains a kind of sovereign state and, and doesn't, isn't kind of doesn't collapse. Um, so th- I think there certainly is an issue there. I think there has been concern points that Ukrainian officials have maybe given uh, views that are not held by U.S. officials, and there might be kind of disagreement over that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure about the, the full extent of it. And of course, you know, we'll see. We'll see if you know Russia. They, they, there are some training areas near uh, in Russia near uh, near uh, Ukraine that that apparently have been kind of reopened. That we're seeing kind of movement happening again. More, you know, the last week or so. Um, there's been talk that they've they've kind of deployed more aviation. So all that's kind of possible. The the big issue is that when you talk about a large mobilized force, you know, manpower is important, but mobilized soldiers, you train someone to sit in the trench and kind of defend and shoot back if someone attacks them, much more easily you can to kind of attack and do offensive operations because that takes more training, more unit cohesion, things like that. So, you know, the, the issue with this kind of large mobilized force Russia has now certainly gives them a better, better ability to defend. But it gives them not as much of a better ability to attack um, because the units are not going to be as capable. And of course, the question of how much equipment do they have? You need more equipment to attack as well. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we'll see. Um, I do think uh, in some cases, Ukrainian officials have, have probably given the, you know, more kind of worst case scenario when they, when they paint the, the intel picture. Um, but, you know, again, they, they they want to take back all their territory. I think there is a legitimate question whether or not um, foreign aid is um you know the the there's a stated kind of uh, uh goals of NATO officials about what we want Ukraine to achieve and a question of whether or not there is a mismatch between what we're actually providing them. And so and, and ultimately I think that you know that, that is a concern. And so you know I think that if if Ukraine is trying to kind of maybe 
uh, you know, uh, massage that a little bit. You know, it's not that surprising. Um, it, it, as I was saying before, you know, to 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 to, uh, to overcome kind of Russian uh, forces defending in depth, especially if Russia has kind of manpower advantage, Ukraine will need a number of you know capability advantages, right? So maybe more artillery, more precision gun munitions, more tanks, right? Always giving them things. And it comes kind of a holistic package, right? Combined arms. Does Ukraine have enough capabilities, enough advantages to kind of overcome those things? Um, that's not fully clear. And so anything they can get, you know, new new equipment, more ammunition, all of that could play a role and it could give them better chance of success. And ultimately, you know, Ukrainian officials, they're they are responsible Ukrainians. And Ukrainians want to retake all the territory. So, you know, I, I, it's not not surprising they might kind of massage some of those figures, right. expectations in order to achieve what Ukrainians want to achieve. They have to walk a fine line uh, between persuading allies of the importance of aid without making the situation seem so dire that those same allies start entertaining the idea that something short of full Russian withdrawal is an acceptable outcome. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a distinction here between U.S. officials have a good idea of what's going on in the war. And they have a better idea than I do because they, they see things that I don't see. So, you know, when they when they hear Ukrainian officials maybe hype up um, the threat of a Russian, you know, new invasion that they're, they're not seeing, they they know it's happening. But the question is, is that shaping uh, public perception in the U.S. in a negative way? And I think that's the bigger risk is that, um, and, you, and you hear that, you know, more often now, is that people think Ukraine can't take all the territory. They think it's, you know, a hopeless stalemate at this point. And when you hear these kind of new comments, oh, actually, Russia now has the advantage, which is something you hear in the last month, um, a lot is very kind of short term. It's based on, you know, who is attacking right now. Well, there are reasons why Ukraine might not be attacking, even though they could. Um, so it's not necessarily the best indicator. But when Ukraine officials are maybe saying, you know, we, we expect this to happen, there's going to be more claims or more calls for the U.S. to kind of intercede and say, OK, no more arms unless we're making a push for diplomacy. Um, and of course, the problem there is that Russia is not particularly interested in diplomacy, right? They right. They want they want to take more of Ukraine. They want to force more concessions on Ukraine. They're not happy with status quo. And of course, you know, if, if we push for negotiations, it would be a worse situation for Ukraine than what they're they're facing right now. And so that's the bigger kind of concern. You know, the, the conditions just basically aren't there, regardless. I think if, if whether or not we want them to be. Can you talk, uh, like in in maybe more general terms about your understanding of how perceptions affect material outcomes in war, right? Like in this specific case, why does it matter if various global publics um, start getting the wrong idea about Russian military capabilities? If the fact is that they aren't actually capable of a major incursion, Um, but just generally, why do these perceptions, whether they're, you know, in the heads of the people fighting the war, in the heads of the populations that are supporting it from the outside matter is it just morale and and can you see is there when you're when you're sort of analyzing a war in real time can you is there like a correspondence between what the information environment looks like and then how the actual fighting is is going on does it does it change things in a in a somewhat predictable way hmm not not sure about that. I, I think there's on, on one hand, right, Ukraine is playing an information game. So is Russia. So is any country that's fighting war. And then there's, there's also obviously the information they have at hand, which they, you know, they'll they'll keep kind of, you know, secret and they won't kind of publish. Um, Ukraine's done a very good job of publicizing their victories, 
and concealing their defeats. Um, so some some of some of their defeats don't become clear until months later when you get reporting on it or the kind of things that come out. Um, so in that regard, it's it's often difficult to get a full picture of the war if, if you're only relying on open sources because you know open sources will not tell you everything. Um, has that shaped the fighting on the grounds? You know, I, I'm sure there's a sense of momentum that guys will get right, whether they get either negative or, or, or positive kind of perception. Um, but you know. If you talk about some of the big reverses that happened for Russia in September and October, and there are a lot of oh, there's a lot of kind of outcry telegram complaining about you know these leaders or that that or so on, you know ultimately they're able to kind of still have a successful withdrawal from Kherson and stabilize the front lines. So even though you had all these morale issues, ultimately you know they they're still able to kind of prevent a kind of collapse, and you know they look like they're in a, a decent position now, and they kind of went back on the on the offensive, even though they're they're not advancing that far. So, you know, I, I think um, I think one concern is that we're at, we're the people, for us, like not not in the war, not not kind of seeing it directly, but kind of perceiving it from open sources. There's, there's, a, there's a risk that we kind of you know, look at little changes week to week or or kind of perception changes and you exaggerate what the kind of analysis of the war is or how how, how the war is going to change. When in a lot of cases it doesn't actually it's information that's not really that relevant. Um, right. I think sometimes. We plug in. We're trying to predict things. We try and plug in information from sources. Sometimes we plug in information that's not particularly relevant, and it, it influences how we look at things. Right. Um, and, and again, I think, I think especially the, the, during the winter, there's been a big, um, you know, every two weeks has been a big kind of you know, view of saying, okay, how is the war going now? Is Russia winning? Is Ukraine winning? And it's like, well, that's kind of the wrong answer or wrong kind of question to ask because it, it's neither, right? And sometimes, you know. A lot of wars last a long time. This war's already lasted for a year. It will likely last for, you know, through the summer to next year, could be longer. Um, and so we look at the kind of changes from week to week. It doesn't tell us that much. It's more about, you know, what are the kind of really significant events? Um, and we haven't had, you know, a, a particularly significant event since um, probably Russia kind of pulled back from from the right back of Arasan in November. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the risk of sort of employing a hammer nail kind of fallacies, like my best uh, you know, kind of experience understanding what this, the, how morale affects actual outcomes is in covering campaigns, right? Like political campaigns, elections. And, you know, there's a reason why campaigns try to keep talk happy about the state of their own campaign, because when the news environment or the polling or whatever starts looking bad, you can sense that it affects the morale of the candidates and their aides and they don't want that to turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. At the same time, there are often elections where it's like, wow, if you're, if you're, if you're basing your suspicions about who's going to win this, this race or which party is going to win the midterms or whatever on the, on the basis of who seems to have the upper hand on the morale question, I don't see like a real correspondence to, you know, the, it's not like a very good way to make predictions or forecasts about election, just like who, who is benefiting from good morale or a good information environment, because ultimately like there are more fundamental questions that help determine those things. And I kind of assumed that something similar happened in war, but you're talking there about people who are like, have to get up in the morning and actually fight for their lives or fight to, to kill the other guys. And if they're feeling depressed, essentially is what we're talking about, or like, this is all hopeless. I could see how that could really immediately translate from like the information environment changes to the fighting quality goes down. Um, but I don't yeah. know. It's just not my field. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, 
I think there's truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a risk we might exaggerate it. Um, so, you know, example, when, R- when Russia was kind of withdrawing from areas of, of Kherson or elsewhere, like Kharkiv, so on, um, you know, and when, it, when it is kind of sham referendum, right, they said, this is part of Russia now. Right? This is Russian territory. And then they voluntarily withdrew from Russian territory, right, which is uh, what they get. What they claim is Russian territory, obviously, it's all Ukraine territory. Um, obviously, a lot of the Russian telegram channels are saying, what what are we doing, right? Because you, no one wants to fight in a, in a dumb war. No one wants mm-hmm. to fight in a war in which, she, you know, the, the goals are unclear. Um, and, of course, that was one of the criticisms of Afghanistan after, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, in this case, you know, this war, the, the, the goals are even less clear at this point, exactly what, what Russia wants and what, what it's going to end the war with. I mean, it still has ambitious goals, but, um, you know, what, what is the purpose of Russian soldiers who are trying to hold Kherson or region, which don't really have significant political or historical connections to Russians, right? Crimea does, Donbass does to, to some extent, but like Zaporizhia, like, does anyone care? I don't think they do, right? There's there. But when you took with the morale questions, m- most of it is kind of more direct things, right? So it's, you know, it's winter. Um, these guys, they have hot food last night, right? That's a morale factor. Are their feet wet? Do they have new socks to replace their, you know, so- you know um, wet socks. Um, you know, is the leadership competent? Does the leadership care about soldiers? Do they, they treat them like garbage? Um, you know, are, are, are they getting hazed? All those kind of various things. Those are a much bigger kind of morale factor for individual units than I think the high high level stuff is. And ultimately, it. It, it also comes back to like, look, oh, am, am I getting killed? Right? And, and are right. we are we going to be employed in some ridiculous kind of offensive that has no chance of success, or am I sitting in a trench where? Okay, life's not good, but you know I, I'll probably survive, and you know I'm 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 warm enough, and so on. Those are the kind of more immediate things that are that are right. more important. Um, the big ones are are, are significant too, but again, I, I think I think to some extent because you know the thing before I've seen before because so many Russians, I think, basically say that you know what the Russian government does is out of my control. I think that view might might kind of persist into the Russian military or even like mobilized soldiers. They say, look, I can't affect how this war is going to go. I'm just trying to survive. And if I have a good leader in charge or a bad leader in charge, that's really what affects my kind of morale or my perception of, you know, how today is. Got it. So let, let's bring let's bring this all full circle, um, because I think there is a morale element to the, to the question I have about the U.S. budget and appetite for for supplying aid. Um, and I don't know where it fits on the spectrum from questions like camaraderie and am I cannon fodder to sort of grander 10,000 foot elevation questions of how the war is going. But I guess the question is, um, you know, can the very fact, if we assume that this aid that that we're spending now isn't fixed and will go down later this year, can the very fact that the U.S. government will no longer be fully unified around the war effort, um, you know, and, and all the headlines that will run, about that tug of war, can do you expect that to have a material effect on Ukrainian forces, their morale, their um, you know, their hunger for the fight, um, or do you think that that's sort of too abstract? So, I think that the bigger issue is um, <clears throat> you know Ukraine is very dependent on, on foreign aid at this point, right? Most of the defense issue was was targeted. I'm not sure how much ammunition they produce this at this point. They're very dependent on ammunition, weapons, you know, servicing, all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> the bigger issue for them is that when Ukrainian military commanders try and plan out what we do in the next three months, six months, 
you know, what, what, what kind of offensive operations can we plan? What can we plan? They have to allocate ammunition. They have to allocate units, manpower, equipment, so on. Right. And with an assumption of we are going to lose this many people, right? This many guys are going to get killed. This many tanks should be destroyed. This is how much ammunition it's going to take to, you know, do this kind of offensive. And so the expectation is that if the U.S. is still providing, you know, a similar amount of artillery ammunition every month, they can make that kind of calculation and say, okay, you know, we can use up this amount um, and still realize we'll be okay, you know, if things go wrong. If they don't have that confidence, right, and, and they're receiving one-off kind of deliveries of, of ammunition, then it becomes a question of we have to, you know, husband the, this artillery ammunition to defend, right, just just to hold the current front line. Um, and we can't necessarily uh, try and do offensive operations because we don't know if we'll have enough, um, you know, to just defend, let alone to attack. So that's that's how I think it really kind of affects their calculations, and, and it's been affecting them for a while, right? It's, it's all, all I think somewhere before that, there was a question for them: What can we do with what we have on, what we have on hands? What can we assume we're going to get, and how much do we rely on that kind of faith we're going to get these things? So th- I think that's the bigger problem, you know, going into you know late in the twenty twenty three, and, and part of this too, I think, is just you know the U.S. has provided a lot of uh, stockpile ammunition of artillery ammunition, um, air defense missiles. That's another big question because. You know, Ukraine's air defenses were initially based on Soviet-built um, um, air defense systems. You know, I don't know; they're not, they're probably not producing those missiles anymore. Most of those missiles are coming from Russia, right? So they're not; they can't. We can't. Um, we can't provide them, and so that's why you know we're trying. I think different types of of, of methods for kind of making up for that. Um, we don't have a great solution because the U.S. air defense from the U.S. is produced is provided by fighters, right? It's fighters, it's Patriot Stads. We don't really have medium and kind of other air defense systems, ground-based air defense systems anymore because we, 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 the U.S. built is structured differently. Um, so all those things are, 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 are factors that Ukraine has to keep in mind. I don't know if it's going to affect morale that much. I think, you know, again, Ukraine's, they realize it's kind of an existential war for them. And so they're going to keep fighting no matter what, um, you know, and even, even you know, there are obviously morale issues when things don't go well, but, you know, Ukrainians are not going to give up. Because the alternative is is still something they can't really you know consider, and so again that, that also again that works against Russia's wherever. If Russia was saying we just want these limited aims, right, that would be a way to kind of maybe get it. But as long as the war aims for Russia remain, we want to basically kind of um, remove Ukraine as an independent country, and we still want to do regime change, all these kind of things, and we still want to you know, occupy more of your country, and you know what's going to happen to areas that been occupied. That's a really strong motivator for Ukrainians to keep resisting and fighting no matter what. So whatever morale effects trickle down from sort of global awareness of infighting in the United States, political infighting over how much help we should be giving Ukraine, it's really the actual material aid itself, the, the weaponry and the, and the finances that, um, that will affect the war effort, like basically, it's like if the if the if the dollar amount of U.S. aid drop of, of U.S. aid drops, it will its main effect on the world will just be that Ukraine will have less resources to fight the war with, um, which is sort of what I expected. And so I guess I'm, I, we can close this on the question of like how concerned are you? You know, assuming there's no you know uh, political collapse for Putin in, in Russia over the next few months. Or and there's no big breakthrough on the front lines where Ukraine exploits some some weakness and and the trajectory of the war changes and we're sort of where we are now. Um, 
that there's a budget fight in the U.S. The amount of aid in the um, in, in next year's budget drops from the 45 billion we approved last time around to some number that's significantly lower than that. That what are your concerns that a that'll happen and b that it'll have a material effect on Ukraine's ability to persist beyond late 2023? Um, no, it is concerned. So, so it, it's not even just politics. It's also just, you know, industrially, you know, Ukraine is firing moratorium mission, you know, every day that is being produced in NATO members. Um, and it's not clear that production was ramped up fast enough. Not clear we had the capacity, right? If we thought through this kind of industrial capacity um, after the Cold War ended, it's been a long time. We, I don't think we've, we've kind of tested this. So I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's a combination of issues. Um, you know, one, I, you, know, I, you know the politics better than I do, so I, I can't speak to that well. Um, but, you know, there's also, it is, I think there is polling that's suggesting that Americans are less willing, I think, to, to kind of provide aid indefinitely, but still majority support it. I think that's still a strong argument that, you know, the Biden administration can make and, and other politicians can make. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think they're, they're, especially when information comes out and if people get the, the perception that Ukraine is not winning or is losing or... That you know, it's a stalemate, and and we can we can achieve negotiations right by pushing for them, which I, again I don't think is is an accurate assessment. That can shape people's views of this, so I think that is a problem. Um, but you know, ultimately, it's you know, it's a question of can Ukraine keep receiving enough artillery, ammunition, air defense missiles, other kind of equipment to stay in this war? Um, and you know, that's that's not fully clear. Right? It's not fully clear just by the U.S. Not fully clear if NATO members can do that. Not fully clear if, we, if our defense industries ramp up production sufficiently. Um, you know, obviously, I, I, with, with some of the weapons deliveries, you know, some of the questions come to how does this affect U.S. posture with China, with Taiwan, you know, North Korea? Um, you know, for TACMs, example, the, the, the long-range missile for the HIMARS, um, only limited amount were produced. Ukraine has been asking for them for, you know, six, seven months, um, and they would have any immediate effect because they already operate HIMARS. It put a lot of targets at, at um, in range within occupied Ukraine, but if you if you start taking high Mars, you know almost all those missiles are kind of accounted for. I think in, in U.S. kind of military planning for potential scenarios, and so if you start removing them, it does become a question of okay, we are in some way right downgrading military capabilities for certain other con- contingencies, and it will be a question you know for artillery ammunition javelins, right? I think I think the 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 um, the risk is a bit lower. But at some point, right, that might be an issue where, okay, now we cannot provide these kind of weapons to other countries. Now we're, we're, we've run through stockpiles. We, we kind of start taking on more risk if other things occur the longer this war goes on if we are not replacing that through production. And I think right now, I don't think we are production-wise. So um, I think there are some industrial questions, right, about how much, you know, how much support is Ukraine going to get? And at a certain point, you know, we might be well, – I'm sure we'll, we'll keep providing artillery ammunition. But if the numbers decrease, it might basically mean, okay, <clears throat> this is only enough for Ukraine to defend, not to attack. Um, and that might kind of a, a, affect what Ukraine can, can attempt to do and basically their kind of strategy for the rest of the war. Got it. And, and well, I mean, this is highly speculative, but if you have a, a situation where these months turn into a full year of very little movement on the front lines, and it coincides with a um, changing political situation in the U.S., changing um, ability for the U.S. Congress to to continue financing a war effort that really is just on the same front line, um, and then 
perception that like this is this is just where the line is and we can uh you know spend and spend and spend and spend in, in the hope that at some point one side or another breaks or we can just say like we are willing to support an effort to make that that the new border um and hope that Ukraine can be be sort of bullied into just agreeing to negotiate ar- around those terms you you're saying you i think you're saying that you don't think that that's a likely outcome but i guess i guess what i'm trying to circle around is the political debates that we will have in the us about how much money to supply to this effort that that seems stuck right now um can sort of be determinative if of if in the long run ukraine will get to keep all or most of its territory whether we'll have to settle for losing a significant a significant amount of it yeah no it's it's a it's a very important variable um and again i, I think you know artillery ammunition that that availability for both the russian and the ukrainian side might be the biggest you know variable of 2023 of how we explain how 2023 went um you know because if you have, have more of it you, you're more likely you can do offensive operations effectively if you have less it's a bigger deal and if one side runs low then they'll have a they'll, they'll struggle to defend effectively so um foreign support for both sides is is significant and it could it could alter the, the course of war and you know again it, it always, always comes back to you know it, it's a debate u.s domestic politics other kind of domestic policy nato members um whatever um decision making happens in in north korea right whatever happens in tehran i don't know right what what, what, their, what their, their their factors are all those things come come together to, to try and kind of come up with okay which side can kind of sustain this war better based on all those kind of ammunition other kind of weapons they're getting so i, I don't know there's a short answer um mm-hmm. i think ukraine has a number of advantages right i think morale is one i think clear strategic purpose is one right and this you know this unity we've seen in ukraine and we, we know they can do offensive operations if they have the right equipment um i think ukraine will make gains but right how much that that will you know how much they'll, they'll take back a lot of it is is kind of up, up for debate and you know their ability to say this war going deep into 2023 based on these kind of concerns about foreign support that's an open question too um and of course like i mean russia if they think they can say this, say this war better and they think they they're at a point where they they have advantages over ukraine they're not going to end the war they're going to keep pursuing it to try and achieve as much as they can and ultimately that's you know that's one of the big concerns going forward is that it doesn't look as though there's a strong domestic threat to putin it looks as though Russia can kind of sustain a lot of this for the foreseeable future. Maybe some of that's wrong, but it doesn't look at that at the point. Um, and if they think they have the advantage, you know, they're going to try and take uh, to try and walk away with more from this war than they've already achieved. Um, and that's a big, you know, concern going forward. Right. Yeah. And almost in a way, like the fact that this we have this budget situation and this political division in the U.S. is is a is a signal to. Russia, like if we could just hang on for a few more months, like Ukraine's uh, capabilities might abruptly change. Um, and, you know, that's just one factor, as you allude to, among many. So it's I guess we're sort of ending where we start, where I I, I like my ability to foresee or like my sense of where things are headed remains as unclear as ever. But I understand the um, the dynamics and the and the and the various factors affecting things much better. Thanks to your input. Um, so Rob Lee, appreciate you spending so much of your time with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
A couple observations to close us out this week. One, Rob really helped me understand, A, why logistically the war in Ukraine has, from the way, way outside, appeared to be stuck in this holding pattern for so long, and B, what kinds of things it would take to break the impasse. The big things in Ukraine's favor are the possibility of political turmoil in Moscow, which in turn may become more likely if Russia has to conscript more soldiers, particularly from the ranks of their regular workforce. There's also the potential for a strategic breakthrough at a Russian weak point on the front lines, and the potential that new armaments from the West will be game-changing in some way. On the Russian side, there's mostly just the hope that this grind will eventually wear Ukraine down. But Relatedly, Vladimir Putin also would clearly love it if a big reduction in military aid made Ukraine simply unable to sustain its own side of the fighting as this stalemate drags on. And as Rob said, that's a real possibility. We aren't wrong to have worried about that. And to be a bit more political about it, it's a reminder that the stakes of Republican budget brinkmanship in Washington are impossibly high even if you ignore the total recklessness of threatening to force the country into default. But there's a bigger lesson buried in that comparison we made between how morale works in political and military contexts. I think Rob's biggest point in explaining to us how all this shit works is that you can't really plug everything you know into a formula and then have faith that what comes out the other side will be a helpful forecast for the medium and long term. It's far too chaotic and complicated to model. There's so much uncertainty. And there I think the analogy to regular politics holds up better, with the lesson being that it's easy to overthink things and imagine that we or the contestants can see ahead several moves. It was really smart of Democrats to put so much Ukraine aid in the last omnibus before Republicans took over the House. It was not so smart to leave the debt limit in place in the hope that Republicans might be suckered into making various political blunders. And I say that even as Republicans are making political blunders. Yes, it's fun for now that they're fighting with each other over whether Social Security should even exist. But a lot of people would probably rest easier if that weren't happening. And at the same time, Republicans had less leverage than they do over the coming budget. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. 